My name is David Birnbaum. Welcome to The Safe Space. Today, my guest is Nathan Hallwell. Nathan and I discuss end-of-life care. Nathan lost his mother to cancer, and I lost three of my grandparents to cancer, and we discuss the complicated topic of how long should you extend someone's life depending on the state of that life. If someone is a vegetable versus if they just need help breathing, what quality of life does someone at the end stages want to maintain for themselves? And how as a family member can you weigh those decisions on their behalf if they're unable to? It's clearly a controversial and complex topic, and I, I appreciate Nathan having such a frank discussion with me about it. We also touch briefly on private versus public funding models and how that really does impact the nature of who makes the decisions and how the decisions are made. I am sure we didn't cover everything, so if you have some areas you'd like to discuss with me, please let me know, and let me know what you thought about this conversation as a whole. As always, if you like the content, please subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcasting app, and consider supporting us at btimedia.me. Hey Nathan, thanks for joining me. Thanks David. Um, So today we're going to talk about I suppose, end of life care for, you know, people either with terminal illnesses or at the end of their life. And this is actually a topic you um, brought up to me originally. So why don't you tell me, like, you know, your context as to why you were thinking about it and why you think it's an important thing to discuss openly? Yeah, I think, um, yes, end of life care, I guess, is really uh, where you have specifically an older uh, grandparent um, uh, or older parent. Um, and the hospital system um, cares for them and resources are basically resources are spent to extend their life by three, four months. Um, and my take, my opinion is that those resources could be allocated to um, other areas of the hospital. And, you know, if your grand, your parent or grandparent um, has had a long life, then, you know, it is the end of their life and, and you do have to accept that everybody dies. Um, it's a concept that all people don't like to, to have, but at the end of the day, it's a resource allocation and resources in hospitals, especially uh, um, right now, are limited. So we have to be able to, to live with death as a, as a concept that happens all humans. So, Yeah, and so I, it's a really interesting topic to me because it's like right away, I think people will already call you like callous almost, right? Because yeah. the idea is as soon as you're talking about life and death, like yeah there's this sort of implicit assumption that we should extend everyone's life literally as long as possible, almost no matter what the state of life is as well. Um, And then like to kind of bring up resource allocation, it's like, you're talking about resources when you're talking about someone's life, right? So there's, there's that interesting perspective. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the state of life for some of these people at this stage. And then also, I think it's a separate but important aspect of, yeah, that actual resource allocation, you know, so for, for me, I had three grandparents who all passed away uh, from cancer and with all of them, it was a question of like, okay, how long are they going to live in this state, whatever that sort of end of life state was. And there's also a question of would they want to be in that state? Right. And some people, they do want to, they, they would commit even before they're in a before they're in a really poor state that they want to live as long as possible and then the family grants their wishes or sometimes the family doesn't want to let go but for 
you know, in my perspective, they're essentially dead, many of them, right? And, and they, could, they could maintain that. Some people do that for years where they're like in a vegetative state or whatever it is. And you're, you're sucking the resources. And, and it really, I think, I don't understand how it would be anything other than a fear of death or a fear of loss. And it's just prolonging the inevitable to me. Um, but what do you think of sort of that aspect of it, of the, the actual sort of state of life uh, for, for these people? Yeah, so I know there's a public health metric called QOL or quality, quality years of life. Um, yeah, I believe that's what it's called. Uh, basically, it's, uh, use, it's been used to measure how long to say you want to extend someone's quality years of life. But you can also think of it as someone who's in vegetative state, they don't really have quality years of life um, at all. So, um, you know, adding years that are not quality, does it really warrant the, the use of all these um, public health or uh, sorry, healthcare resources? Um, as, what was your second point again, David? Sorry. Well, so I'm wondering, like, you know, if you had a family member, if you've or if you've had a family member, how do you make that decision? Because people are sort of scared of death; they want to put off the inevitable. So they'll just, you know, some people will keep someone hooked up as long as possible. They'll struggle to let go, and then there it is. Really, just it's not a person at some point, right? Or it's barely a person. But people don't like to view it that way. And there's also this idea. One thing I, you know, they should pass away naturally is sort of something that's put forward. But like they're hooked up to tons of machines, keeping them alive artificially, right? Um, so I'm interested in your thoughts on, on that aspect of it. Yeah, so yeah, I think it is, I've had been some thinking about this and I think it is a fear of death and the fact that the death is an unknown aspect. As humans, we've investigated a lot of things. We know the depths of the ocean, we know the far vast of the universe, but we don't know what happens after death. And I think that is an important aspect of why people fear death in general, just in my opinion. Um, I think this is why people want to extend life as long as possible, even though it really is not living. It's, it's just being alive, mm -hmm. but it's not living. Um, yeah, so I think that is a reason why people may put into their will or people may put into writing or, or, or caretakers of family members may want to have um, people in the hospital live as long as possible. And I'm all for finding resort or finding solutions to make people live better. So, you know, I'm in biomedical, biomedical engineering and, and we find solutions for people to live healthier lives, but um, not necessarily to live as long as possible in, in like you said, vegetative states. So, mm -hmm. you know, if we can extend the human life of quality years of life by 10, 15 years, and you, people are active and living till 105, and this is well, futuristic sounding, but um, you know that that would be that would increase quality years of life. But we don't we don't want to extend it. Say we don't want to extend people's vegetative state by 10, 15 years because that's really not living. Right. And and if I may, like we we've done another episode talking about your loss of your mother, because I think some people will think, oh, this is just a callous conversation. Where it's like, no, we we've both dealt with this, and you've dealt with the loss of a parent. How did these conversations come up at uh, with your mother, I don't know sort of um, her end of life cycle, so to speak. But how did you contemplate this with, with your family, if you don't mind talking about that briefly? Yeah, um, yeah. So I, uh, I know I just, just I remember it distinct or fondly, or not fondly, but distinctly. 
um, that she had come into the hospital and she was in a wheelchair. And um, she told me that she was going into palliative care. And at first I really didn't understand what that meant. And then I understood that they, they weren't gonna be trying any more chemo and that it, uh, the cancer had uh, basically been rejected by all the therapies that they've been doing. And it wasn't going to, the cancer was spreading too quickly and, and it wasn't going to, anything that they currently had wasn't gonna work. And, and there are therapies on the market right now that possibly could have worked, but they weren't available at the time and approved. So yeah, it's a, it's a harrowing experience to say, you know, this person has X many days to live. It's, it's, um, it really grounds the fact that, wow, this is, I'm just only going to see them for another like week or month or two months or whatever, like whatever time for is, but there is an end point to their life, which is something that we don't really think about when you think about your parents, yeah, your parents are going to die in one week. Like that's not something you think about because they're, you know, their loved ones and partners and parents. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a harrowing experience and I, I did cry and, and she cried with me. Um, and yeah, it was, it was hard to process, but at the time, um, and, 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 oh, sorry, a few hours later, a few days later, I, I understood that, you know, we're going to allow her to pass peacefully. And, and luckily she wasn't kept in some sort of vegetative state. She was allowed to uh, live pain-free um, for as long as possible. And she did, I guess, pass away naturally, but she was, she was pain-free. So I have nothing against people using painkillers to pass peacefully, but, you know, using ventilators and, and keeping people alive um, basically on machines is, is not something that I uh, full, full, fully support. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I remember my, one of my grandmother's, um, yeah, it was like her second time fighting cancer. Um, and at some point she's just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Right. Um, but I think one of the things that came to mind is that the sort of definitive end is what's really scary to people. Cause if they keep fighting forever at some point they'll pass, but there's no like explicit time frame because you could extend it another three days or another two days. And so sort of having this definitive end or like, we know it's within X um, because they've, and, and potentially some people even dislike the sort of notion of quote, giving up. Right. But yeah. I, like, I don't view it that way. I view it. My grandmother accepted it. Right. Like it was, and, and it's sort of each person has to decide the state of life they're willing to, to endure, so to speak. But, you know, I think many people, they understand that it's not really living at some point, right? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. being not dead, which is different. Yeah. And, and, and you can also think of it as if you have the same situation of, and this might be a little bit, um, like you said, callous or, or too unemotional, but you, if you're trying to save a child versus trying to save a 95 year old, mm. the potential of good in a child is a lot more than a, or good or, or like of actions in a child is much more than the 95 year old who may pass naturally in whatever, two years or um, so yeah, you gotta get, it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to think about. Yeah. But, but that is hard or it's difficult to process, but that's, kind of how I look at situations like that. Yeah. And I think that brings us to the, the concept of like the resource allocation, right? Cause it's difficult for people to, people to accept, but like 
right now in particular, there's a lot of really old people who are taking up a ton of, quote, public funds and really draining the Canadian healthcare system. And, and who's supporting that? It's, it's the young people, right? We're draining young people's uh, ability and, and capability in order to maintain other people's lives, right? And, you know, that, that's one part of the question, one part of the question. But for me, another part, which I know will certainly upset family members of mine and, and many people generally, is even if you're not talking about specifically the very end of life, right? Even if you're talking about someone having like a relatively normal life for an additional year or two, if that costs, you know, $300,000, $500,000, like I know my grandparents wouldn't have wanted that burden for us. Like if we had to cover those costs, because, you know, what, what did they want in their life? They wanted to have successful and happy children and grandchildren. And if then, you know, if they're 80 years old and to extend their life one or two years would financially cripple their family. I, I honestly think they wouldn't have done that, right? They've lived a full life and many people at the end of their life, they do accept that. But because the sort of burden is placed on the public at large, the financial burden, you know, they view it as like, oh, whatever the cost, that's acceptable. But someone is paying for it. And, and, and like, that's the reality. So the same way that I don't think many people would want to cripple their family for this end of life care, extending it one year of, of the sort of same life they've always lived. Like, again, it's, it's not just the, the kind of sick child that is missing out on potential resources. It's the healthy people as well. And that is what really upsets people to talk about it this way, I think. Yeah, and I do. And now we're verging on uh, public versus private health care and, you know, extending someone's life by a year for private health care, you know, might not, it might be extremely expensive, but you divide it by 30 million people like in Canada and it's not that much, any pay taxes and, and you've basically paid your dues. So I, I kind of see it as for in a public health care system, you know, you've paid your dues and, you know, if, if the public health care system is, can operate and say, we can give you two more years of quality living, let's just say, say someone, like you said, someone's 80 and they can need to do some sort of surgery or some sort of treatment and you can extend your quality years of life by two years. I think that's owed. But then that, again, it come, begs a different question when you talk about private healthcare and that is a significant uh, financial burden for that family or caretaker. Um, and then to get back onto the topic of uh, the, um, resources and, and healthcare systems right now, Especially with COVID, yeah, I know, uh, I know, I've I've heard of countries that have having having a triage. I know in the states um, they've had a triage patients that uh, you know are the most savable. And luckily, in Canada, I don't believe it's had it's been that bad anywhere. But I know it's it's it is a difficult decision. It's a moral dilemma for a lot of healthcare providers. But um, yeah, it is at the end of the day, the hospitals are businesses, and they have to they have to allocate people who they think are going to be save, savable, which is kind of a terrible thing to think about, but that's what they have to do. They're in the business of saving people's lives. So, And so, um, you know, why is it important to talk about this? Because I agree, we don't want to sort of get into the private versus public funding question, yeah. right? But to me, it's, it's mildly relevant because who's the decision maker is who's the, who has the money, right? Like who's going to pay for it? So it's either the family or, 
you know, some government or hospital person, right? But regardless, like, it seems like many of the topics I like talking about, it's very important, but seems really difficult to talk about. Is it just a fear of death? Or is it this sort of, it seems like, um, I can't think of the word, but they're not, com- is it commen- commensurate, right? Like life versus money, so to speak, right? How do you, how do you do it? But then the other option is, oh, well, is it a 10 year old's life or an 80 year old's life, right? Like at some point, these decisions do have to get made. And if we're just terrified of talking about it, like many people are, then, then, you know, who's it left up to? Someone is still making these decisions, right? Yeah. And I think this video hopefully, um, brings up the topic for at least one person, one family that would be worth it if they're, um, you know, have aging parents or older grandparents, you got to bring up that topic because it is not a nice topic to bring up. Um, and I know uh, my partner has had uh, a grandfather has passed away and he was actually adamant um, to not uh, use um, hospital resources and he had a broken hip and the surgery would not have they would not have been able to do surgery. He would have been, he would have uh, not survived. Um, and he at, on his own volition was able to um, say like, I, I don't, I don't want to be living anymore. And he, he was quite, he was 90 plus. So, um, you know, he felt like he had a, a long, a long enough life. And, and it is sad for the family and it is sad for my partner and her family and sad for me um, because I didn't get to spend more time with him because he's a great gentleman. But at the end of the day, he, was, he saw the world through practical lens. And that's not always a nice lens people want to see through. They, they like to see through emotional lenses. They want to keep people around for as long as possible. But practical lenses um, will, will save, will allow hospitals and healthcare uh, centers to save someone else's life, I should say. So they don't have to spend mm-hmm. these resources on, on saving someone who may not be I don't want to say worth saving, but may not may not have those quality years of life um, after the treatment or surgery or therapy. Right. And I think that brings up a, an interesting and, and once again, extremely like kind of taboo topic is, you know, there does seem to be sort of some people who understand and accept their death at, you know, whatever age it comes. And some people who are terrified it and who will uh, prolong their life in any state, no matter um, no matter what. And, you know, it, it would be interesting generally to try and understand the difference between those two types of people, but also like, it's almost like the, the, the fearful ones because they're fearful get more resources. Right. And again, you know, is that fair? Like there's no sort of, especially in a public system, there's no sort of, um, question right like we almost think well we owe it to whoever to stay alive as long as possible and yet uh the the people i know who are more sort of grounded and and more comfortable with the life they lived they're less likely to take it right Mm -hmm. so it's just this interesting sort of conundrum um which is quite complex probably yeah and maybe there are philosophy researchers and you know probably maybe public health researchers who have Beg this question and ask surveys and 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 maybe figured out some more and maybe psychology researchers and if you could figure out why people want to choose to live longer than other people and that, that's that's an interesting topic but yeah it certainly warrants some maybe some investigation into why people and and maybe this video inspires people to start that uh, investigation if not if it's not already been started 
And one thing that comes to mind that's sort of a very uh, explicit or concrete example of this, because again, people don't like to sort of make these life or death decisions, let's say, but like what you said about, you know, an 80-year-old versus a nine-year-old, right? This is a consistent issue with, for example, organ transplants, right? Like we have a heart, who gets the heart, right? So like, that's probably, you know, you know, a heart is however much money, like half a million dollars or a million dollars or whatever it is, right? But like, that's a much more concrete than, oh, two years of all hospital resources to maintain their life. No, it's like, well, there has to be criteria of who gets a heart. And so I'm assuming there is, and you do have to quantify projected life expectancy and, and quality of life. And do they have, you know, some genetic disorder that, so we're not going to give them this heart because they're only going to have 10 years of life. And, and again, people are making these decisions, whether we like it or not. And so it's explicitly the case for something like an organ transplant, but you know, it's important to realize that it's the case. Generally, every decision in a hospital is a decision like this. There is not an infant, at least right now, there's not an infinite or, or, uh, I don't know the right word, but like there is limited resources. Like that's just the fact of reality. Um, and so we need to have these conversations. And then we also need to, in my view, discuss who should be making these decisions, how and why. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And yeah, I think no hospital can have unlimited resources and provide, you know, everyone gets a hundred percent of care all the time. We are human beings day and day and doctors need rest. There's only so much PPE everyone can use. There's only so many drugs. There's lots of supply demand issues. There's it's a whole business. So it, there is, there are issues that will arise and um, yeah, you make a good point. And do you have any sort of last thoughts on this topic or I do want to sort of bring up uh bring up one other topic, but it's a little tangential. Do you have any last thoughts or, or points on sort of the main subject? No, I think you've uh, brought up all the good points. Thanks for that. Um, yeah. And thank you. And so I want to sort of bring up the question of who should be making these decisions. Cause we don't have to get into the public versus private funding, but to me, that is the, the direct correlation, right? It, you know, in a private system, it would be, you know, my family making the decision with my grandmother, for example, of how long we think um, we can afford to maintain her life. Uh, would she want us to go into that amount of debt potentially to do that? And it, and it would be a question like that. Whereas, um, and I apologize to my family, um, but like, whereas we just took it for granted, they took it for granted. Oh, as long as possible, it's, you know, someone else's buck basically. Yeah. Right. And you know, we won't get into economic theory, but like, I don't think that's the case, right? Like, so the, the generations will eventually pay for it anyways. The money doesn't come from nowhere. Canada is in a, in a massive amount of debt. So it is me and my children who will pay for it. It's just harder to understand that, harder to see that clearly. And, and then also it's at some point, some doctor can decide or I don't know this system in Canada, actually, is it that Canadian doctors will always let people live as long as possible, no matter the cost? Or can a doctor at some point say, no, it's not really worth it anymore? I don't think that's the case in Canada because they take a vow to save people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, so the doctor can't decide. And I know, I believe there are some states that you can't, you can't, I think it's, it's a poor wording. Um, and so uh, 
if there's if there's anyone who's triggered by this, I, I urge you to to stop. But it is um, there's no um, what's it called death by suicide. Basically, is like the, right you, um, you, you, euthanasia. You, yeah, yeah, k- kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you, you can't. There's some some provinces that don't allow you to choose to die. Like I right. so. You know, I get sick and I'm like, I don't want to live anymore. They wouldn't allow me to, to end my life. End of life. That's right. End of life. That's what it's called. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I know, yeah, so it is hard to say who who is the final decider. And I think, in my opinion, I think it is the informed patient. Um, and I think giving them all the options um, and hopefully if they're uh, cognizant um, and, and able to make those decisions, which hopefully most people who are about to, receive surgery that may that or whatever uh are at least somewhat somewhat um mentally there um if if they're informed about what is going to happen if xyz treatment occurs and you know do you do you tell them that this is the cost this is the cost that you're doing but obviously you're not paying it because of public healthcare system but this is the cost of xyz surgery or treatment um, and does that help them inform their, or help them, help them make a decision? Um, and ultimately I believe that is the, the person's, um, decision and, but it's whether they, it's how much information they, um, are given. And I think that that's, that's, yeah, that's my point. Yeah. And I, I'll bring up that I do agree with, like, I imagine many people saying, well, like someone shouldn't die because they're poor. Right. So if right. they can't afford the surgery or their family can't afford it, should do they deserve to die just because of that? Right. And that's a valid question. And it's something that should be explored. Um, like, what is the right way to go about this? But I think we first need to be open to to that discussion. I think the end of life thing is also really interesting because it is, I believe, now legal in Canada. It was like a Supreme Court. I mean, some there's issues in some provinces, but like it's largely legal in Canada for doctors to assist in suicide or whatever it is for a patient's end of life. But there were also yeah. articles coming out about like doctors almost like nudging patients towards that even after they had indicated they didn't want to. So that's another sort of uh very complex and interesting thing to investigate it, it we, we won't have time to get into it fully here but like i do think that's um you know an important other dynamic because it also does give the patients more freedom generally right because um you know it was before it's like do you want a year of grueling pain until you eventually pass away or to fight it and have maybe slightly less pain but now there is the option to you know end when you decide and, and relatively quickly and painlessly, which again is very difficult for people to talk about and accept, but it's, it's a fact of reality, right? People will pass away at some point. And if you're already in a very bad state, you, there is some, there is a power that comes with being able to decide your end yourself. Yeah, um, exactly. exactly. And, and people want to go out on their own terms. And I think that giving them that, that ability, I think is, is, like the, the the last grace we can give them, they give them their wishes, kind of, mm-hmm. if they choose that. Um, so, do you have any last thoughts? I think we've done a relatively good job of covering the scope. I hope that this at least gets people thinking, because I totally understand it's a difficult topic, and and talking about it at all even seems callous. We've mentioned that multiple times, but I think it's an it's 
someone has to talk about it. Someone's making these decisions. So I'm very grateful that you'd be uh, willing to come on and, and have this conversation with me. But do you have any any last thoughts? No, uh, thanks for having me on, David. And I think it, you're very good point. Right? It is a difficult conversation, but it is a conversation that people need to start having, whether that be healthcare providers or, or people or people with older parents or older grandparents. Um, yeah, it is a conversation we need to have, and it's it's uncomfortable, but it's important. Um, and hopefully, this video series can hopefully answer or start to probe people to discuss those difficult um, situations and the difficult um, topics. All right, great. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks a lot.